and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a radical anti-abortion ruling expected soon, banning a medical abortion drug nationwide from a federal judge in Texas, Matthew Kaczmarek, a Christian, in quotes, zealot who does not believe in the separation of church and states, hates gays, thinks transgender people suffer from a, quote, mental disorder, and was chosen by the so-called Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine because of his far-right disruptive rulings on immigration, transgender rights, and his interest in anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. Joining us is Leah Littman, professor of law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal courts, and reproductive rights. She clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll discuss how this expected ruling goes way beyond the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision since it is an attempt to ban over 50% of abortions in states where abortions are legal and it does so without presenting any evidence that the abortion pill that was approved by the FDA 22 years ago is in any way unsafe or harmful. Then we'll look into the latest shootdown of a mystery object over Alaska and the history of balloons being used for spying and speak with Peter Bergen, the author and editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year. He is a national security analyst for CNN and has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues and has held teaching positions at Harvard and Johns Hopkins University. His latest books are The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, The Biography, and The Cost of Chaos, The Trump Administration and the World, and we will discuss his article at CNN, The Long, Strange History of Spy Balloons. Then finally, we'll assess how much being subpoenaed by the special counsel, Jack Smith, to tell the truth about how his boss tried to have him lynched will damage Mike Pence's already slim chance of becoming the president, the Republican nominee in 2024, let alone the next president. Joining us is Tom Lobianco, national politics reporter for Yahoo News, a longtime reporter who has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for the Associated Press, CNN, and the Indianapolis Star. He's the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House, and we will discuss his latest article at Yahoo News, Subpoena Could Complicate Pence's Decision to Run for President in 2024. And joining us now is Leah Littman, who's a professor of law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal courts, and reproductive rights. She clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Leah Littman. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks as if the Supreme Court is probably going to end up with this case uh, called Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It's before a very far-right judge who has his background. Uh, he was chosen, obviously, by by Leonard Leo and approved by Trump. Uh, he was a general counsel for the First Liberty Institute, a Christian law firm in Plano, Texas, and they apparently oppose the separation of church and state, and they've also been propagating all kinds of bizarre anti-LGBTQ legal theories. 
So Judge Kaczmarek has delayed his ruling on this case to ban uh, Mifepristone, which is commonly called the abortion pill. The ban would be nationwide. He's delayed his ruling until February the 24th. But most people think, since he has a very disruptive record so far, that he will rule against it. So then it goes to the Fifth Circuit and then the Supreme Court. Would that be your prediction, uh, Leah? Yes, I think if Judge Kismirik does revoke the Food and Drug Administration's approval of Mifepristone, then it's certain that the administration will take the case to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and if they don't prevail there, that they would ask the U.S. Supreme Court to reinstate the FDA's approval of Mifepristone. And I think it's important to underscore what exactly the plaintiffs in this case are asking, you know, the courts to do. Mifepristone has now been approved for you know, over 20, 30 years. And the plaintiffs in the case are saying, you need to take that back, notwithstanding all of the evidence over the last few decades that Mifepristone is extremely safe, extremely effective, and none of the FDA's judgments have even remotely been called into question. The chemical abortion process involves one pill of Mifepristone, which was approved 22 years ago by the FDA. Then a day later, four pills of misoprostol, which was approved in 1973 by the FDA. So what is the, the, the argument then? I mean, obviously, pills are much safer than surgical abortions, let alone childbirth. So where's their evidence that suddenly these drugs that have been on the market for decades are unsafe? There is no evidence. I mean, the reality is, you know, these drugs have been in use for over 20 years and mifepristone is extremely safe. You know, abortion is the medication abortion pill. It's safer than antibiotics, right? And abortion is much safer than giving birth. Um, And the plaintiffs, you know, realize that, that there is no case they can possibly make before the agency to get the agency to withdraw its approval of Mifepristone. And so they are asking a court to do it for them. Um, And it really is astonishing when you realize over half of the abortions in the United States happen through medication abortion, because as you were suggesting, you know, medication abortion is extremely safe. Um, Now, surgical abortion isn't technically a surgery, um, but, you know, it's still medication abortion is less intrusive than the surgical procedure. And what the plaintiffs are asking the court to do is essentially create a nationwide ban on the most common method of abortion in the United States. And without evidence. With no evidence. I mean, all Mm -hmm. of the evidence, all of the experience over the last two decades is medication abortion is extremely safe. It is safer than tons of drugs that are approved. It is safer than tons of medical procedures. It is safer than childbirth. And they have no real evidence that the FDA was wrong 20 years ago when it approved use of this drug. So let's talk about uh, Chief Justice's stare decisis, the idea of settled law. 
this would completely undercut the FDA's ability to do its job, right? Because anybody can second-guess the FDA's approval of drugs based on no evidence whatsoever. That's complete chaos. It is, and that's why courts to date have never revoked the FDA's approval of a drug before, because it would be utter chaos if you had courts being allowed to second-guess the approval of a drug 20 years after the fact and on the basis of, again, no real evidence that the drug is actually unsafe. So this judge uh, or this case brought to this judge, Kaczmarek, in Amarillo, Texas. Apparently the the plaintiffs, they have an address in Tennessee, about a thousand miles away. So this is a case uh, which we, we've seen a lot of lately, which is called, I guess, Supreme Court shopping, or in this case, lower court shopping. So, so many cases this one judge has ruled on that have been so disruptive. He's twice disrupted the Biden administration's immigration policy on Remain in Mexico. Uh, the Supreme Court actually found last June that President Biden did have the authority to end the policy, but Kaczmarek then comes back uh, and shuts it down in December, orders uh, in December that Remain in Mexico must be kept in place until the lower courts complete their deliberations. He's also struck down uh, guidelines from the Biden administration that protect transgender people from discrimination in the workplace. Um, but now he's really taken up an incredibly bizarre case from these uh, anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists, theorists who were suing some of the world's leading new media organizations, uh, you know, the BBC, the Associated Press, New York Times, CNN, you name it, uh, for refusing to carry disinformation about vaccines and their alleged threat. So this guy is off the rails, isn't he? Yes, and that's precisely why the plaintiffs file these cases in locations where they're basically guaranteed, you know, to draw you know, him or another judge that has been appointed by Donald Trump. I mean, in addition to the specific case outcomes that, you know, this is a judge who just in the last year has issued opinions in which he has cited the dissenting opinions in Bostock versus Clayton County. That was the decision that concluded that under the federal civil rights law, it is illegal to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. And here you have the judge citing the dissent in this case in order to resolve others. You know, he has also cited the dissenting opinion in Lawrence versus Texas. Lawrence is a decision that concluded the Constitution protects adults' right to engage in consensual sexual intimacy with a person of the same sex. And again, here you have a judge who is relying on um, the dissenting opinion in that case. And that's why these cases are being filed where they are. Um, and just based on what this judge has done in previous cases, people should be extremely concerned about what he might do, you know, with respect to the abortion pill. So do you think this was triggered by a recent FDA decision last month that allowed retail pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens to sell misophistone over the counter? No, uh, because the plaintiffs aren't taking aim at that over-the-counter determination. They are asking for a full-fill revocation of anyone's ability to prescribe mifepristone over the counter in a doctor's office or anywhere. I think what triggered this is Dobbs, you know, the decision overruling Roe versus Wade, 
which gives states greater latitude to restrict abortion. And again, what the states are seeking here is essentially a nationwide ban on the most common method of abortion. And once the constitutional right to abortion was off the table, then the states were always going to ask for and try to get some version of a nationwide ban on abortion. So if they succeed, and it's sort of a, this case has turned into an example of the divided states of America, because there are two coalitions of states arguing for and against. The New York-led coalition of attorneys general arguing to keep Mifis Bristone on the market include California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Washington, Wisconsin, and Washington, D.C., and the Mississippi-led coalition arguing against the FDA's approval of Mifis Bristone include Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Montana, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it, the extent to which how divided the attorneys general of this country are over this? No other country seems to be obsessed in the way that we are. Yes. And again, I think the lineup that you just rattled off, you know, is interesting and important for several reasons. One is the fact that you have, you know, Republican led states, Republican attorney generals essentially asking for nationwide abortion bans, even though, you know, a majority of voters in the country and honestly, a majority of voters in their own states don't support, you know, any sort of abortion ban of this nature. And second is I think it's important to understand that these states are asking a federal court to do what you know Congress cannot do and what this president would not allow, namely a federal abortion ban at the legislative level. And so they're asking for the courts to give it to them. So if they do ban Mephis Pristone, the second so-called abortion pill, uh, misoprostol, which again was um, approved in 1973 by the uh, FDA, it still works apparently. So there is that backup, isn't there, uh, Leah? Yes. So um, what doctors could do is basically prescribe off-label uses of misoprostol, and you can take um, just misoprostol without mifepristone in a different dosage and induce a medication abortion. Now, that's effective, not as effective, and it is more painful than a misoprostone and misoprostol medication abortion. You know, that's why the FDA approved the use of misoprostone. Um, But, you know, this is part of the problem of the post-Obs landscape is you are seeing states, um, some federal officials basically trying to outlaw or do away with, you know, safer, more effective and better, you know, methods of abortion. And they are making abortion, you know, more difficult, more dangerous, um, you know, with the ultimate goal of just making it really difficult to access in a safe and legal way. So this really, at the end of the day, goes back to Leonard Leo, doesn't it? And the Federalists and the extent to which they've stacked the federal bench with judges like this guy. I think he's only 44 years old, Judge Matthew And as I mentioned in the beginning, he comes from a Christian, so-called Christian law firm that opposes the separation of church and state. So uh, that in itself is radical, being a kind of dominionist. 
and then he has this history of a weird opinions about gay and lesbians, etc. And he's one of these Opus Dei, ultra-conservative Catholics, and there's a lot of them uh, even on the Supreme Court. This is what's scary about it, isn't it? If he rules the way most people expect him to, and then it goes to the Fifth Circuit, which is the most conservative federal circuit court in the country, then it goes up to the Supreme Court. There's a whole bunch of, I was going to use the word fellow travelers, I don't know what, that may may not be the best description, but whatever they are, co-religionists in terms of ultra-conservative Catholicism. I mean, it's no secret that the Federal Society and Leonard Leo plays an outsized role in selecting judges that President Trump appointed. I think most people have focused on that phenomenon with respect to the Supreme Court. And I think there has been less attention on the kinds of appointments that the Trump administration was making in the lower federal courts, you know, at district courts, trial courts, um, like the kind of court that Judge Kismerick sits on, but also on the courts of appeals. And part of the reason why, you know, if Judge Kismerick um, revokes the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, part of the reason why it seems likely that the U.S. Supreme Court would ultimately hear that case is because of the kinds of appointments that President Trump was making to the to Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the Court of Appeals that would hear, you know, an appeal from Judge Kismerick's ruling. Um, and I think the more people learn about the kinds of decisions that judges like Judge Kismerick have been issuing, you know, the more they should be concerned about what the previous administration did to the federal courts. And it might also renew some interest in revisiting what are known as blue slips, which are the Senate convention that requires home state senators to give their consent to the president, even when the president is a different party for any judges um, who are nominated or confirmed, you know, in that state. And what has happened is some Republican senators, you know, including those in Texas, have basically Use the blue strip, use the blue slip to obstruct the judicial nomination and confirmation process during Democratic administrations, essentially withholding their consent from any possible nominees. And that ensures that when there is a Republican president and a Republican Senate, that they can stack, you know, these courts in particular places with very conservative ideological nominees. And then plaintiffs can essentially pick their judge or kind of judge um, by filing in these districts where you know, senators have only allowed their own party to appoint judges. Well, we also had the example of, of the Federalist-appointed, Leonard Leo-approved Trump-appointed judge down in Florida who made the most bizarre rulings over the Mar-a-Lago classified documents. Yes. So is it just in closing, is there any way to undo this? These people, they're choosing them young, so they're around forever. They can do enormous amount of damage. I mean, there are several things, you know, revisiting the blue slip process right now. Um, Second is Congress can change what are known as venue rules, you know, the rules about where cases can be filed or the kinds of courts that can hear them. And that would reduce the odds that litigants would be able to pick which district judge hears their case Um, and also possibly adding new seats, you know, to the courts of appeals as well as the district courts um, to make up for the fact that, you know, the Republican Senate during President Barack Obama's final years essentially didn't allow him to confirm any judges, which allowed then President Trump to stack these courts um, with judges like Judge Kuzmerich. Well, Leah Lidman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you.
And again, I've been speaking with Leah Littman, who's a professor of law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal courts, and reproductive rights. She clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the latest shootdown of a mystery object over Alaska and the history of balloons being used for spying. You and me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. All these years I've stayed at home. While you had all your fun And every year that's gone by Another baby's come There's gonna be some changes made Right here on Nursery Hill You set this chicken your last time Cause now I've got the pill Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing Available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Peter Bergen, the author and editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year. He is a national security analyst for CNN and has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues and has held teaching positions at Harvard and Johns Hopkins University. His latest books are The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, The Biography, and The Cost of Chaos, The Trump Administration and the World. And he has an article at CNN, The Long, Strange History of Spy Balloons. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Bergen. Thank you, Ian. So, Peter, we just learned on Saturday from Prime Minister Trudeau that another object was shot down over Canada. And obviously, there's a lot of interest in what this object was that was shot down over the north of Alaska. From what, The only description I've heard is... And one official apparently told ABC News that the object was cylindrical and silverish gray, and it was balloon-like. It was sort of floating without any uh, sort of propulsion. On the surface, yeah. that sounds pretty strange, doesn't it? A silver cylinder. Uh, it does, and you know this. This you know, there's a super interesting report that the Pentagon put out, which didn't get a lot of attention last month by this. Um, relatively obscure office inside the Pentagon with the wonderful name of the All-Domain Autonomous Resolution Office, a a name that only the Pentagon could come up with. But basically, to put it in plain English, it's the new office in the Pentagon that was established in July to look for unidentified flying objects. And there was an unclassified report that came out from the office of the Director of National Intelligence, which said that they looked at about 500 plus sightings, many of them relatively recent, uh, coming from mostly U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force military personnel. And I think more than 160 of them were balloons or balloon-like objects. So, you know, that might explain the fact that, you know, some of these balloons have been coming over but haven't been identified. Certainly we know of three during the Trump administration, which were identified sort of retrospectively. It might also explain some of these other, you know, the, the more Chinese balloons 
than perhaps we've been aware of. Uh, you know, some of these identify, unidentified flying objects are also uh, drones. And some, uh, according to this report, are just unexplained sightings. I think there are 171 of them. So anyway, to me, it, it, if I'd just done a piece on the report when it came out, and then when I heard about the Chinese balloon, you know, you can start putting uh, two and two together, and maybe sometimes it makes four. Well, this balloon, or whatever it is, was first detected yeah. by a U.S. radar at 9 p.m. Alaska time on Thursday evening. It was obviously traveling very slowly because it was shot down the next day at 1.45 p.m. near Prudhoe Bay, right in the north of uh, Alaska, and it was apparently heading to the North Pole. Apparently it, uh, it hit the ground pretty hard and broke up. So whatever it was, I don't know what kind of shape it's going to be in, but... Right. One of the things that puzzles me, uh, Peter Bergen, is that it was shot down by a Sidewinder missile, and I thought they were heat-seeking missiles, and this thing apparently didn't have any propulsion. So how does that work? I just don't know. Um, mm -hmm. That's outside my area of expertise. Because mm -hmm. the, the, the Chinese balloon was also shot down by a Sidewinder as well. Yeah, and it, yeah I saw that. I saw that. Um, yeah, but... Do they take off the explosive warhead, do you think, or...? I I just don't know. I just mm. don't know. But I mean, um, but yeah, the Chinese balloon obviously I think brought home to a lot of ordinary Americans that the Chinese are surprise surprise spying on the United States. But um, you know, in they've certainly done much worse. I mean, you know, there are pretty reliable indications to show that they stole the the, uh, the plans for the F thirty five fighter aircraft, which cost you know tens of billions of dollars for the United States to develop. And then replicated their own. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, they broke into the sort of office of personnel management and basically siphoned off 21 million records of current and former U.S. government employees. And of course, you know, there are no visuals for those when that happens. Uh, so, you know, those are much more significant. But I don't think most Americans know anything about those things uh, because. They were done, you know, through computer networks and there's no pictures. But I think the balloon was a picture and I think it was a picture that everybody understood. So you wrote, you wrote in your article at CNN, Peter Bergen, that hackers stole the design data about the F-35 aircraft and, and yeah. gave them to China. How much more do we know about that? Were they independent or were they Chinese hackers? You know, I, 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 I don't know the answer. I mean, I think a lot of this is sort of um, sponsored by the People's Liberation Army of China. Mm -hmm. um, and to do something that sophisticated, uh, you know, would probably require state-like states, state capabilities, not just, you know, some uh, a bunch of hackers somewhere. Uh, but, you know, there's a whole, you know, there's a lot of continuity between the Trump and the Biden administration now about the Chinese. The Trump administration certainly... Uh, you know, kind of reversed or certainly changed U.S. policy to China, becoming a lot more skeptical. And they cited, you know, this, I mean, it's not just the F-35s, it's the sort of consistent um, theft of U.S. intellectual property by the Chinese was one of the things the Trump national security em uh, strategy emphasized. And you know, the Biden administration has basically kept much of what Trump did in place. For instance, the Chinese tariffs, a pretty, uh, you know, I would say skeptical attitude towards the Chinese, uh, freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea, 
and the like. So there's a fair amount of continuity between these two administrations on this issue. Well, the, the OPM hack, the hack of the U.S. Office of uh, Personnel Management, that was devastating in the sense that the, what they got was the resumes, the entire, I mean, you know, what you put on your resume, <laughs> if you apply for the CIA or the NSA, they got all of that stuff. I yeah, imagine yeah, they even I got mean, pictures of, of all the, something happened that enabled the Chinese to roll up the entire uh, U.S. espionage effort they had within China itself. Well, certainly this Office of Personnel Management hack was uh, very uh, useful for the Chinese. And I mean, I, most people, I didn't even really know the Office of Personnel Management even existed. And I, I think the Chinese were smart in the sense that they, it's not like hacking into the Pentagon, which is pretty hard, or the CIA or the NSA. This was probably a very lightly defended agency, very obscure, relatively speaking. Uh, but on the other hand, these records are incredibly useful, as you point out, because it's got the records of everybody's I mean, I mean, a lot, you know, 21 million people who either currently served or, or do serve with the U.S. Uh, or had served with the U.S. government. That's information that's pretty useful to the Chinese. So what do we know, though, so far about what they've retrieved off the coast of South Carolina? You see pictures of lots of the mylar, I guess it is. So far, I don't believe that they found the whatever the incriminating thing they're looking for. They've said that there are antennas that are capable yeah. of scooping up, you know, cell phones and other things. But none of that sounds particularly concrete, is it? At the end of the day, could this be embarrassing? Could it actually be just a weather balloon? Or, I mean... Uh, I don't think... I, I, I doubt it's a weather balloon because, I mean, why would a weather balloon be sort of... I mean, you know, it, it would seem like a very high level of coincidence that this weather balloon would be transiting over U.S. military bases in Montana... Um, and, um, you know, the, I, it would be very off course. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, the, uh, I, I kind of take the, what the administration is saying at face value, which is that it's some sort of spy balloon that was able to listen in on communications. And, but, you know, and, and for the Chinese, why would they use a balloon when, you know, spy satellites are so good? I mean, they, they're relatively inexpensive compared to a size spy satellite. If it if it you know, crashes or disappears or gets shot down, it's you know it's not the end of the world. And apparently they're more maneuverable. Um, and 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 also they may be hard to de- you know relatively hard to detect if they're flying it like if they're up at above sixty thousand feet. So um, you know for the Chinese it, it may be just a useful new tool. And it, I, I think it. I can't prove this, but I think it may help explain some of these sightings that were in this uh, report about unidentified unidentified flying objects that uh, came out last month. Well, apparently the solar arrays that dangled beneath the balloon, and they were what the length of three transit buses, they were used like sails that they could maneuver them so the U.S. is picking up all kinds of telemetry, <clears throat> and apparently the U.S. was also able to somehow shut down the balloon's ability to scoop up anything as it traveled across the United States. At least that's what we've been told. So presumably yeah. they were monitoring very active telemetry going on with the balloon, so the weather's not that complicated, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, also they, you know, they may, uh, why do they wait? 
for a relatively long time for it to, for it to kind of go public with the fact that the balloon was transiting the United States. I mean, was it incompetence or was it because they were tracking it and didn't really want the Chinese to know? Or, you know, there, there are a bunch of reasons that we, you know, there are going to be congressional hearings about it. And Republicans certainly want to make certain Republicans certainly want to make a, you know, um, kind of investigate. And, uh, you know, we'll, 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 I'm sure we'll learn more from those hearings. So your article at CNN, Peter Bergen, The Long Strange History of Spy Balloons, makes it clear that this is an incredibly old technology, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Napoleon's armies in 1794 were using them for reconnaissance. I, I found out when I was writing the article that there was a Union Balloon Corps, which I had no idea, during the Civil War, so an actual sort of the uh, the union set up a, a balloon corps for the purposes of uh, you know kind of re- reconnaissance over Confederate armies, and then yeah, you know, my my father worked in was uh, first lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force, and um, yeah, I was reminded of the fact that he worked on a program when he was based at Dayton Air Force Base in Ohio that sent balloons uh, over the former Soviet Union, you know, with cameras, which was a you know pretty low tech compared to what we can do now in terms of satellites. But so, yeah, this has been around for a long time. Um, and uh, I, you know, the, it, the reason we're talking about it is, you know, we could see the balloon. <laughs> uh, if the Chinese are stealing secrets uh, via the Internet, you don't see it. So it's sort of like it's just the best of a story. Right, and, you, and you, your father's work in in the 1950s, where he was assigned to the headquarters of the Air Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, on the project called Grand Union, those spy balloons were launched from Turkey to drift across Russia. I believe there was also similar programs with China as well. So there have been lots of balloons floating around. Yeah. So, so what, what's, what's your sense, though, of... There was a diplomatic price paid in Blinken cancelling the, the trip, and some yeah. argue that that's not a good thing. But on the other hand, I imagine, given how much the Republicans have been pouncing on Biden about this balloon, shoot it down, shoot it down, shoot it down, etc. I mean, imagine if, yeah. if Blinken would have gone to China, they, they would have gone even more hysterical. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think the politics of it. I, I mean, I'm sure Blinken wanted to go and do the trip because it makes sense to try and like you know, not get into a war with China and try, obviously, to kind of re- reduce tensions and kind of normalize relationships. And that trip had long been the planning. But from a political point of view, I think it became impossible. Um, and uh, it wasn't just Republicans. I think you know, uh, lots of people, uh, you know, kind of that uh, it just brought home to to quite a lot of people that. You know, we have a, a relatively serious rivalry with the Chinese, and they're spying on us. Well, there are apparently been reports that the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, has tried to call his Chinese counterpart on the hotline many times yeah. in the last few days, and they're not picking up the phone. No, well, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, so that sort of speaks for itself. And so, and you know, this also comes in the context of uh, the four-star Air Force general who made a kind of unfortunate comment that went public about, you know, needing to prepare war for China by 2025, which was uh, a story that came out just before the balloon story. So, 
you know, I'm sure the Chinese think that's now, you know, official U.S. policy, even though I'm sure its general was sort of speaking out of line. Um, so, yeah, situation is that's not good. Not good. Well, just in closing, then, there's also another report that U.S. intelligence thinks that Xi Jinping may not have authorized this incursion by this balloon. Which yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. Well, but, that's know, pretty Biden scary, isn't it? I mean, the idea that you'd have rogue <laughs> elements. Well, I, I mean, is it? I mean, what is? I'm, you know, is it rogue elements, or is it like, you know, maybe this is kind of a semi-routine thing that they do that she is, you know, generally aware of. But like, I mean, it's not like President Biden, you know, kind of is aware of when we send a spy satellite. I mean, he's not tracking everything that the United States intelligence community is doing. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to make of that. Hmm. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. And thank, uh, we'll, thank you very much. Ian. Obviously, okay. this balloon over Alaska has got every. <laughs> but it might. <laughs> At least now we know yeah. about a good chunk of these UFOs may have literally been balloons. So that in <laughs> itself is good to know. And I thank you. It is. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Bye. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Bergen, who's the author and editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year. He is a national security analyst for CNN and has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. And his latest books are The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, The Biography, and The Cost of Chaos, The Trump Administration and the World. And he has an article at CNN, The Long Strange History of Spy Balloons. We're going to take a brief station break. We'll be back with an assessment of how much being subpoenaed by the special counsel, Jack Smith, to tell the truth about how his boss tried to have him lynched will damage Mike Pence's already slim chance of becoming the Republican nominee in 2024, let alone the next president. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tom Lobienko, who is the national politics reporter for Yahoo News and formerly a Washington correspondent for Business Insider, who covered Trump and the Republican Party, a longtime reporter who has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for the Associated Press. His latest book is Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. And his latest article at Yahoo News is Subpoena Could Complicate Pence's Decision to Run for President in 2024. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Lobienko. 
Thanks, Ian. Good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And Mike Pence appears to be sort of caught between the law and politics or the law and his political ambitions. <laughs> and he is a very, very conspicuously pious man, the title of your book, Being Piety and Power. <laughs> and for the life of me, I don't understand why this man doesn't want to tell the public how his boss tried to have him lynched. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I, I've wondered about that myself for, I mean, ever since, uh, you know, what, 2.24 p.m. on January 6, 2021. Uh, I mean, he has avoided this for a long time. He had a chance talk about it in his memoir, which published uh, back in November. And he did, but it's almost like he doesn't grab the gravity of it or the, the or the historical gravity of this. Um, and, you know, clearly his ambitions are still for the White House. Um, I mean, he has been a, a regular guest in Stops all across Iowa and South Carolina and, and to a lesser degree, New Hampshire, um, you know, ever since he left the White House. So clearly he's he has his eyes set on trying to get back there as the, as the big man himself. Um, but he still hasn't come publicly has still not come to grips with it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think what the subpoena from the special counsel shows that if this is not something that you can just dodge, you know, this is not just a question about, you know, what would you do with the tax rates? You know, where would you stand on the, uh, you know, a window in terms of the, you know, an abortion ban, uh, you know, time, uh, time window on something like that. I mean, those are all very serious policy questions, but this is a criminal matter involving an effort to a violent what became a violent effort to overturn the election um and he is a seminal figure in american history because of it and i mean i have a lot of questions i mean my well <laughs> if i had subpoena power you know every every journalist in the world right i mean you know I'm sure everybody, you know everyone we all cover we have a million questions for but i, I have a lot of questions just about how he is feeling in there. He's he's been hedging throughout all of this, um, so I don't. I just don't think he can avoid it anymore. Well, but history will show that that was his finest moment. You know that he stood up for the Constitution mm -hmm. and against this raging mob that were chanting "Hang Mike Pence" because Donald Trump had basically told him to go to the Capitol and how disappointed he was in, in Mike Pence. And you could even take it further, Tom. I mean, I've talked to some people who've speculated mm -hmm. that Trump would have been perfectly happy to have Mike Pence lynched. Then the whole count would have stopped, and then he'd be able to put in a flunky who would do his bidding as vice president. I mean, I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory, yeah. but it's not out of the realm of possibility. I, you know, one of the things that was really surprising to me, of the many things that were surprising, watching those, those, those blockbuster January 6th hearings last summer, was how many different routes 
Trump and Giuliani and John Eastman and everybody they were working with, um, you know, Sidney Powell, uh, to a lesser degree, Michael Flynn, um, everybody that they were working with to attempt to overturn the election results and, you know, really, you know, stop a piece, stop the, histo- the historic bedrock constitutional peaceful transfer of power. Um, it was always not, it was always not really about, and John Eastman, you, know, you saw this in John Eastman's testimony. It was, it was, it was not really about, okay, we're going to win on this legal theory. It was, as with so many things with Trump, about running out the clock because they knew that if you could get past January 6th, which is, which is, which is a very specifically designated date, you could throw the entire process into question and you create chaos. Um, and that was, that seemed to be the goal based on all the testimony that we heard, based on the multiple efforts. I mean, this, this thing was like, you know, it felt like just, you know, throw it against, throw these varying uh, legal theories against the wall and see what sticks. And to that point, I mean, you're right. Pence was an integral player here. Um, If he had left, if he had, you know, and uh, we've talked about this a lot before. I still have a lot of questions about it. Um, when that moment where he is in the loading dock or they're on their, you know, they're, they're fleeing the Senate chamber on, on January 6th and they're, you know, they're on their way out to the, the, uh, the loading dock, the safe, the safe spot, um, secure location. And they were going in the, his secret service detail apparently was planning to drive them to uh, Andrews uh, Air Force, uh, the joint base Andrews, um, which would take him far, far away from the Capitol. Um, and he said, he told his lead agent, uh, Tim, he, he says, I don't, he says, I trust you, Tim, but you're not the one who's driving. Um, it feels like going back to that broader effort to just delay, delay, delay until you get past January 6th, like that would have accomplished that. So yeah, if he had gotten in that car, if he had not used his sense in the moment, if he had not stuck to his principles, then, um, I mean, we might not be here right now talking. Um, we don't know what would have happened. But Trump is now trying to run the clock out and, and delay because him and his lawyers are going to sue, apparently, to stop or try to stop Pence from testifying based upon the notion of executive privilege. Trump has done that before, of course. But what Trump doesn't seem to understand is that executive privilege only extends to the current occupant in the White House. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, he, he he does not have the trappings of power that he used to. Um, he, I mean, it's Trump. I mean, have you, I don't think I, I've never seen, at least in the in the modern presidency, one current or former president use the courts so much. Uh, with so little success, um, but again, you know, win, you know, winning nominally is, it may, is probably not the the goal here because it just you know run things out. I mean, that's what he did with January sixth committee. Um, Pence to a to a to a lesser degree did that with the January sixth committee as well. Just you know, wait out the clock on 
um, you know, on request to testify, subpoenas to testify, um, and then the chamber flips. Um, I don't know that I, I don't know yet that this will that will work here. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, former prosecutors uh, uh, point out that, and again, we don't. You know, this is not to say that we actually know what's happening inside the special counsel's operation because that is a very tight operation. Really, the same that the same way that uh, 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 Mueller uh, uh, was uh, a couple years ago, um, but. Former prosecutors have said that um, it, typically you don't issue a subpoena for a star witness, a top-level witness like the former vice president, Mike Pence, um, until you're very far along in your investigation, until you're, you know, you're really starting to close up, wrap up your case, um, potentially, you know, file charges. Um, so... You know, again, just reading the tea leaves, I'm not sure that Trump can stop this. Well, but does that mean that, do you think, uh, Tom LaBianca, that Pence is going to answer the subpoena and testify before the grand jury? <sighs> Hard to tell with him. Um, you know, I, I kept on, <laughs> I remember after, you know, a couple months after January 6th and Pence hits the trail, you know, ostensibly campaigning for uh, for midterm candidates, um, he uh, was he didn't talk about what happened for you know close to a year really, um, and you know you remember back well, about a year ago now back was I think it was uh, January or February of last year, and he said he all he said three words you know Trump was wrong. And that was enough for all of us in the press to jump because we're like, wow, Pence finally said something. Um, and he slowly started talking a little bit more about his thoughts on what Trump did. Um, and I was really waiting for him to talk about it in the book, in his book. Um, and he did, but he hasn't really expounded on it. Um, and again, I mean, just the historical gravity. Of, of of what happened, um, you know, he might never talk about it. He is a very I've been covering politicians for twenty years at all levels of government, and he is a very tough nut to crack. But presumably, the special counsel Jack Smith wants his testimony because he was in all the key meetings in the before the insurrection. And, of course, his experience during the insurrection is key, particularly what was going on down in the basement of the Capitol when he refused to get in the limo and why he refused to get in the limo. I mean, those are the most explosive questions to be asked, I think, aren't they? And particularly the meetings with Eastman and all these nutcases pressuring him to, as Trump said, do the right thing. That I mean, when Senator Ron Johnson's uh, staffer uh, uh, tried to hand him the fake electors, tried to arrange a meeting to deliver a slate of fake electors just hours before the actual certification on January 6th. Um, I mean, there is a world of information that he has access to that we have not seen or heard about yet. Um, so, I mean, yeah. Now, I'll throw this out as a caveat specifically around him um, and and the Trump campaign and Trump and to um, 
kind of, I guess, uh, meddle this a little bit or kind of just tamp it down a little bit, which is that, you know, towards the end of it um, in 2020, throughout the 2020 campaign, really, you know, after the campaign, um, there was a big rift between Trump's uh, political operation and Pence's political operation. And they were, Trump's people really kind of kept Pence and his team out of the loop on a lot of things. Um, and, you know, it seems that they did not, they were not including Pence in this planning. I mean, obviously, you know, it's Giuliani making the phone calls out to Arizona. Um, you know, you had these fake electors uh, secretly camping out in state houses, you know, one up in Michigan. Um, and, you know, it's Trump and Trump and, you know, Trump himself and Giuliani on the phone call to, to Georgia saying, you know, if you could just find me 11,780 votes. Um, Pence was not really a part of all that, but he was still there. He still had a ton of access. And as the vice president, as somebody who had been with Trump for a long time, um, relatively speaking, um, he has more access to information than a ton of other people save for, you know, save clearly for Trump himself and maybe some others like Giuliani and John Eastman. Right. And he had access to classified information, some of which he left at his home. The FBI just uh, <laughs> <laughs> raided his home in uh, Carmel, Indiana. When was it? <laughs> On Friday. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just in closing then. The raid was consensual. <laughs> but just in closing then, Tom, here's a guy that obviously wants to be president badly. I don't think he has any idea of how difficult it is for him to get the Republican nomination, let alone become president. But he seems to have that delusion. He think, I guess he thinks that the, he's got the Christian right sewn up, but they don't necessarily vote on piety. They vote you know, on power to you know, use the title of your book. So, yeah. I mean, I think the best thing he could do is go public for the record, for history, don't you? That would be my argument. Certainly speaking as a journalist and somebody who's, you know, deeply interested in, you know, knowing just what the, I mean, further what the heck happened. We know a lot already, but we still have a lot of blind spots. I mean, I, I hope that he would, and I suspect that it's his, it's his political ambitions that are still holding him back from doing that, sadly. Right, but if you ask the question... You, you know, thou shalt not bear false witness, right? So mm. at some point or other, his piety has to be matched by his honesty and integrity and courage. And so far, he's not displaying a lot of that. I hope he offers more. It's, um, I've been covering him for since tw 2011. Um, <laughs> a lot of us who write about him. I'll say the same thing. God, we really wish there was more coming. Um, and it never does, even after something like this, even after something like this. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm not really holding my breath, but man, it would be it would be great if he did. He, he really should. Well, Tom LaBianca, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Tom LaBianca, who's a national politics reporter for Yahoo News and a longtime reporter who has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for the Associated Press, CNN and the Indianapolis Star. And he's the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. 
In his latest article at Yahoo News is, Subpoena could complicate Pence's decision to run for president in 2024. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
time one night 